Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for so many things this Thanksgiving season, but one of the greatest blessings of all is the fact that you've given us this book, a Bible, the Word of God, a book we can read any time of day to understand who you are and what you want from us. And Father, thank you most of all that in this word is good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that that gospel will be very clear to each one this morning so that we might see Jesus and him only and then leave here today to to tell others and to show others what he's like. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for having me here this morning. It's a real pleasure. Uh, I've never been here to Vero Beach, never been to Christ the King, but already I feel really welcome and you're, you're a friendly bunch and I can see that God's work has been really rich here at Christ the King. So I look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. I'm coming back in December, I think the Sunday before Christmas, so that'll be great and it'll be great to continue our little relationship here. Uh, There are many reasons that I love living in Florida. I know that a lot of people say they hate Florida, but I love Florida for a lot of different reasons, one of which is earthquakes. (laughs) They are practically non-existent in our state. You know, in the last 200 years, there have only been a few on record, and those didn't amount to very much. In 1886, there was an earthquake in Charleston, South Carolina that rang a few church bells in St. Augustine. And in 1952, there was a slight tremor felt by many up at Quincy, a little town near Tallahassee. Windows and doors rattled a little bit, but no serious effects were noted. A newspaper columnist said, the shock interfered with the writing of a parking ticket. But the same can't be said by our friends in California. If you live in California, you are subject to a lot of earthquakes. There was one in Los Angeles earlier this year, you might remember. Each year, the Southern California area has about 10,000 earthquakes. Can you imagine? Now, most of them are so small they're not felt at all, but others are more serious. Back in 1988... Experts said that within 30 years, a major earthquake would strike the San Francisco Bay Area. And you might remember that it didn't take nearly that long. In fact, just about a year later, October 17, 1989, was the day the Loma Prieta earthquake hit Northern California. You remember that? Some of you are nodding. It lasted just 15 seconds but it measured 7.1 on the Richter scale. Many of you watched the Loma Prieta earthquake on TV. If you were tuned in to the third game of the World Series between the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants, you witnessed a little part of the Loma Prieta earthquake because it happened during that game. The Cypress Viaduct in Oakland, you remember that? It buckled, it collapsed. And 63 people were crushed under the weight of the road that 
crashed that day. 3,800 people were injured. It was the costliest natural disaster in history up to that point. Like I said, I'm glad I live in Florida, aren't you? (laughs) But we may be spared earthquakes, but I can safely predict that every single one of us in this room will experience another kind of earthquake. In fact, many of you have experienced it already many times over. I'm talking about the earthquake of change. Change can be considered an earthquake in our lives. It's like the quakes in California. Some of our changes that we have to go through are so small, we just keep right on going without noticing them. But other changes are pretty dramatic and pretty severe. The loss of a job, the rejection by a friend or by a spouse, the rebellion of a teenager, an unwelcome diagnosis from a doctor, a miscarriage, the death of a loved one or a friend, or the departure of a much-loved pastor. You as a church have gone through the earthquake of change, and you're still there. All these things and many, many more shake us up. They make us worry. They make us lose sleep. They make us nervous and grievous. They create stress, uncertainty, and doubt and anxiety and fear. They awaken all kinds of things in our lives. We don't know what to think. We don't know what to do or who to trust or how to pray. My wife and I, we're going through some earthquakes of change right now. We're still adjusting to that earthquake called the empty nest. Many of you have been there. We just moved my mother-in-law into assisted living. It's a big earthquake. We're going through things with one of our children that is presenting quite a lot of uncertainty and fear in our lives. Somebody once said that if you're in a bad situation, don't worry, it'll change. And if you're in a good situation, don't worry, it'll change. So what are you supposed to think about when you're going through this earthquake? What are you supposed to do? What is Christ the King PCA in Vero Beach supposed to think about during this time of transition, this time of change? I noticed in your preaching schedule, um, you've been hearing a couple of sermons recently on transition. So it appears that God wants to help Christ the King adjust to these earthquakes that come our way. Well, the answer is in today's passage of Scripture. And the answer that the writer of Hebrews gives us to the question, what do you think about during a time of change, is to think kingdom. Think kingdom. That word kingdom is huge. It's so huge you named your church after a form of that word. Kingdom. Look at chapter 12, verse 28 that I read a few moments ago. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot change. The earthquakes of change do not affect the kingdom of God. And so, in your time of transition, think kingdom. What's the kingdom of God? That's a very nice-sounding word. It's kind of theological. We know it's important. But what does it really mean? It means God's rule. 
It means God's reign, R-E-I-G-N. It means God is sovereignly in control of everything. It means God is king. That he is making all things new. He's sitting on his throne. He is putting all things to right, even when we don't see it. And he's laying the groundwork for what we call the new earth. The new earth that is coming, where righteousness and justice and peace prevail. The people to whom the writer wrote this book, they needed to hear that message of God's unshakable kingdom. Because the writer of Hebrews was writing this letter to a group of people going through major, major times of change. They were stressed. They were being persecuted. They were being beaten down and they got discouraged. Why? Because they were tempted to give up their pretty newfound Christian faith to return to old ways rather than to go forward with Christ because they were going through a time of trouble, a time of testing. And so it was very tempting for them to think that if we just go back to the way things used to be, then maybe we'll be okay. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, no. God's in control. God's on the throne. Be faithful. Keep going forward with Jesus. Don't let go of Christ. And the writer of this book wanted these people to know, and he wants you to know, and he wants me to know, that God's kingdom is unshakable. Everything around us may be falling down, God's kingdom, though, is advancing. Things might look really grim, really bleak. You might be going through something hard, something very stressful. But God's kingdom cannot be shaken. So, you and I can be people of unshakable faith, even during times of upheaval and change. So now now let's get practical. Let's talk about what does that really look like and How do we put that into practice in our lives? Well, if Christ the King Church is going to have this kingdom of God mindset that I'm talking about, I'm going to suggest this morning that you need to make four commitments. And I'll leave these four with you to think about during the weeks ahead as you move through this earthquake that is called change. Four commitments. Number one. If you're going to have a kingdom mindset, it means that you will need to be unshakably passionate about worship. Unshakably passionate about worship. Now, this is really important because you're going to be spending most of your time together as a church in this room worshiping God. Yes, you'll have fellowship dinners like you had, what, last night? You'll have various times in small groups and so on like that. But when you all get together in this room, what are you generally doing? You are worshiping God. And the writer of Hebrews says, be unshakably passionate about that. Look at verses 28 and 29. Therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Because our God is a consuming fire. A number of years ago, I was uh, in a church up in Ocala where uh, 
there was a U.S. congressman. Some of you might know the name Cliff Stearns. I was the pastor of that church for some years, and Cliff was a member of that church. And so he invited me to go to him, go with him to Washington, D.C., and he would sort of show me around, you know, and, and take me into the inner sanctums of various things. I met uh, Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House at the time. I met James Ford, who was the chaplain of the House of Representatives. And then came the big moment. I got to pray on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, that sounds real exciting, but there were about three guys out in the audience at the time. (laughs) It was really early in the morning, so not a lot of glory in that. But you can just imagine, can't you, the sense of of wonder that uh, I felt in that moment as I stood where all these famous men and women had stood and where all of these amazing things had taken place over the years in our nation's history, the sense of awe, the sense of uh, 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 I was in the presence of power, I was in the presence of prestige, I was in the presence of democracy itself. That's nothing compared to what we are in the presence of right now. Amen. <laughs> We are in the presence of God himself, the creator of the ends of the earth. We are in the presence of the one who is all-knowing, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We're in the presence of the one who earlier in the book of Hebrews is said to be served By angels, if you can imagine that. And under whose feet everything has been put in subjection. And so the writer of Hebrews says, to render to this God worship that is acceptable. How odd would it have been if I had behaved in irreverent ways when I was there in the U.S. House of Representatives. How odd, how weird it would have been for me to just be blasé about it and to be rude about it and so on when I was there in the U.S. House. And so we would say how odd, how rude, how sinful it would be for us to consider these moments together in this room with a blasé attitude as though it, it means nothing to us. No, worship must be acceptable What does that look like? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that worship that is acceptable to God is characterized by at least two things. Joyful gratitude and quiet humility. Now, let's take a moment to think about those two things. Joyful gratitude, quiet humility. First, joyful gratitude. It says in verse 28, let us be grateful. This is a good time to be grateful, right? It's almost Thanksgiving Day, so let us be grateful. A better translation of that phrase is actually, let us hold on to grace. That's interesting, isn't it? If you translate those words literally, the, uh, the word grateful is talking about charis, which is grace. Let us hold on to grace. So what does that mean? It means that you worship God acceptably when you sense That you're in the presence of a father who dearly loves you and accepts you by grace, not by works. 
When you remember that He loves you, not because of the good things you do for Him, but because of the great thing He's done for you in Jesus Christ. And so you worship Him acceptably when you're joyfully thankful for that. And secondly, you worship acceptably when you have this sense of quiet humility. It says in verse 29, let us offer worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. You worship God acceptably when you remember that God is holy. When he is exalted, that he is sovereign, that he's too pure to look on evil. When you remember that he is the judge of heaven and of earth. And so you are still before him. You are astonished by him. And you are amazed by him. So how do you put these two together? Well, it means that sometimes worship will be loud and fun and exuberant and you'll have a smile on your face. Maybe you'll laugh, maybe you'll clap because you're joyfully grateful. But at other times you'll get real quiet because you know that you're in the presence of a God who is wholly other than us. But always, it should be with passion, with feeling, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If there's one thing that does not belong in this room on Sunday morning, it is indifference. No, let us be grateful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So during this time of change, this earthquake that you all are going through, kingdom thinking means to be passionate about worship. But let's go to the second thing that I think it means. It means to be unshakably concerned for other people. Unshakably concerned for other people. Here I want to go on and read chapter 13 as you listen to verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews now sort of switches his focus from worshiping God, the vertical, to the more horizontal. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now let's ponder those verses for just a few minutes. You know what one of the biggest enemies is when we're feeling unsteady? When we're uh, feeling like we're going through that earthquake? When there's a time of change and transition? One of the things that is our biggest enemies during those periods of time is self-absorption. Self-centeredness. You know, I've seen it happen. When churches go through a time of change, when they're without a pastor, there's often this tendency for members to say, well, I want some me time now. Have you ever heard that expression? I want some me time. I deserve some time. I'm, I'm going to relax, 
and sit back, and I'm just going to kind of see what happens. Maybe when the next guy comes in, I'll get involved. You know what? That attitude would grieve God very much. Don't let that happen here at Christ the King. If you're his child, by definition, you must care about other people, wherever you are and whatever's going on. Think about the verses that I just read. In, in those verses are five ways to show concern for other people. I just want to run through these five real quick. First, the writer says to love your church family. In verse 1, let brotherly love continue. So the first thing he says is that if you're going to show concern for others, start right here. Start with your brothers and your sisters in the church. Don't stop loving. Just because you're without a senior pastor, that's no excuse, right? Don't stop loving. Continue, he says there in verse 1. And the word for brotherly love is the familiar word Philadelphia, uh, where you were earlier. Who was it? Somebody was, yeah, Zach was there earlier uh, this week. Philadelphia. It's not the word agape that you might be familiar with, but it's the word that speaks of the fact that we're in the same family. We're related by blood. Whose blood? The blood of Christ. Exactly. So love one another. Secondly, he says, love people you don't know. Love people you don't know. It says in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Are you familiar with the story in Genesis 18 about Abraham? Our patriarch Abraham. He entertained three strangers, and they turned out, to be angels. Maybe even one of them was the Son of God himself. What if, what if one Sunday a month, I, I'll just throw this out, take it for what it's worth. What if one Sunday a month, everybody in Christ the King Presbyterian Church were to invite someone you didn't know to your house for lunch after church? Or if not to your house, maybe meet them for lunch at a nearby restaurant, something like that. What a goal that might provide you to continue to reaching to continue to reach out to people you don't know to see Christ the King flourish and grow here at Vera Beach. Third, he says, love those who are suffering. Love those who are suffering. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison, he says, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Notice that word remember in verse 3. It really doesn't mean remember like something you forgot. It's not that kind of word. It's a word that means think about or consider or care for or be concerned for. He mentions two groups of people that we should be concerned for. Prisoners and the mistreated. And he says, how are you supposed to view these people as though you were one of them? Now, this is radical, friends. He, he says to think about or consider or remember those who are in prison as though you were in their body. Do you see that phrase? In the body. That is, as though you were in their bodies. As though you were walking in their shoes. Feeling what they feel. Enduring what they have to endure. That puts a a real spin on it, doesn't it? We're not just to sit here in our comfort and think about the suffering. We prayed earlier for those in West Africa. 
We're not just to sit here and think about them mentally and intellectually, but the writer says to think about them as though you were in their bodies, experiencing what they experience. Now, that's hard, isn't it? How can I possibly uh, feel that? I can't, but I can at least try by asking myself questions like, wonder what those who have a virus, a deadly virus, wonder what they feel. They feel fear. They feel loneliness. They feel dread. Uh, They feel loss of loved ones. And so as I experience what they experience, I'm beginning to put this verse into practice. Recently, I read an interview in a newspaper that a reporter did with an 80-year-old widow who lives in a nursing home. Listen to her words and see if you can put yourself in her body. I'm still terribly lonely. It's the evenings. The club closes at 4.30 and there's nothing but long, empty hours until bedtime. You've got to eat to sort of keep alive. But there's nothing. The time is so long. The evenings. The weekends. I've heard several people say, I don't care how soon the end comes for me. I know lots of people. But that isn't the same as a close friend. Now, can you just begin to put yourself in her body? To feel what she's enduring? To experience how lonely that must be? To not have a single visitor during the weekend when many others are coming in? See, every one of us can remember, can consider, can think about a prisoner, a widow, a lonely person, a new neighbor down the street, someone who is grieving, maybe a divorcee, someone who's been mistreated. The writer says, remember them as though you are in the body. Number four, if you're married, love your spouse. Okay, love one another. Love the strangers, love the suffering, and number four, love your spouse if you're married. He says in verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. There's a a whole sermon in that verse by itself, but just think about that for those of you who are married. And fifth and finally, love, 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 but number five, don't love money. In verse 5, he says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Now, again, why would the writer add that? Well, it's because when you're going through a time of change, transition, difficulty, it's very tempting to become self-centered with your money. And the same is true for a church without a pastor. It's very tempting for a church without a pastor to become self-centered with our money instead of continuing to be generous. Somebody might say, well, I'm not going to tithe this month. This is a good time to get that big screen TV we've been talking about for a long time or to build that pool in the backyard that we've been talking about for a long time. And the writer says, look, there's nothing wrong with big screen TVs and pools. But the writer says, be content Try to be content with what you already have so that you'll have money to spare to give to the church and to those in need. 
Do you see the writer's point here? We, we started by saying, when you're in a time of difficulty or change, be sure to worship God acceptably. But he also goes on to say, be sure that the horizontal is healthy too. <coughs> love one another. Love those you don't know. Love those who are mistreated and suffering. Um, love your spouse. But don't love money. That's a way to have that kingdom mindset. Third, not only be passionately committed to worship and concern for other people, but in the third place, if you're going through this earthquake of change, be unshakably grounded in God's promises. So practical, so important. Be unshakably grounded in God's promises. What promises, you might ask? Well, in this passage, there are at least two. Look at verse 5 again, where the writer says, I will never leave you. This is God speaking. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You might have read those exact same words in the book of Joshua. That is a quotation from Joshua 1, 5. What's happening in Joshua 1? Well, Moses is dead. And his young protege, Joshua, is supposed to take the people of Israel into the promised land. He is young. He is inexperienced. The people of God are afraid. There are rumors about giants living in the land of Canaan. And God says to Joshua, look, Joshua, I still want you to take the people up into Canaan. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life, he says. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Same words as what we read here in Hebrews 13. And the second promise is in verse 6 of Hebrews 13, where the writer says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now that's another Old Testament quotation. It's from Psalm 118, and we won't have time or won't take time to look at that psalm, but it's a a psalm you should read this afternoon, Psalm 118. The context of that psalm is anguish and distress and trouble. The people of God are being threatened by enemies. The writer says, all the nations surrounded me. They swarmed around me like bees. I was pushed back and about to fall. And so the theme of Psalm 118 is imminent defeat. Right? Imminent defeat. And it's interesting that scholars theorize that this might have been the last hymn that Jesus sang before he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. All of his enemies had surrounded him. He was distressed It was a theme of gloom and of doom and imminent defeat. And you and I know different. It was not defeat but victory for the King Jesus. But here's the point. When you're stressed out, when you're suffering, when you don't know what you're going to do, it's so important to remind yourself of the promises of God. It's so important to review the Joshua 1.5s and the Psalm 118s. To remind yourself of what is true. The promises of God are like your anchor in a storm. I was interested to find that when I was coming south on I-95 this morning, 
I passed over a canal of some sort, and I noticed a sign, and on the sign were written the words, do not drop anchor. You know what I'm talking about? Listen, for a Christian to not drop anchor, the anchor of the promises of God, you're going to be in big trouble. Because there's so much trouble happening around us. The promises of God are like the anchor that we drop and it holds us firm and still during the storms of our lives. And so here are two examples of wonderful promises that you might remember. Um, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I don't know where you are this morning. I know you very, very little. But I suspect there are people today in this room who need to memorize one or the other of those two promises and take them with you as the anchor for your soul in your time of change. Fourth and finally, during this time of earthquake change in your lives, not only be passionately committed to worship, concerned for others, and grounded in God's promises, but be unshakably focused on Jesus. Be unshakably focused on Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8. I've saved these verses to the end on purpose. Hebrews 13, 7 and 8, listen to them. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What a great verse that is. Mike Malone was a terrific pastor for Christ the King. He's a friend of mine. I love the guy. In fact, he was the pastor for a number of years of my son, my older son, and his wife. I deeply appreciate Mike Malone, and I know you do as well. He's a man of character, a man of integrity. He loves people. He loves the word of God. He knows how to lead and all the rest. And verse 7 says to remember a guy like that. Never forget Mike Malone. What a great contribution he made to you individually and collectively. Honor him. Follow his example. And God willing, you're going to have another pastor someday who will fill his shoes very, very well. But listen, verse 8 says that in the end, it's not about pastors. It's not about people. It's not about authors of great Christian books. It's not about seminary professors or famous celebrity speakers or talented musicians. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. That's what Christ the King's all about. It's about Him. Because people disappoint you. They always will and always do. They won't come through for you all the time. Even the best leader is a what? Sinner. Just like me, just like you. He or she will not love you like Jesus does. We are broken. Every single one of us is a broken person. We can help each other out, sure. But we cannot satisfy the ultimate, deepest needs of one another's hearts. Only Jesus can do that. Yesterday, 2,000 years ago that is, Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you deserve to die. And he rose again in victory over death and sin and shame and the devil 
and everything else. Today, that was yesterday, today, he lives for you. He's alive. He's in heaven praying for you, pulling for you. He is giving you his Holy Spirit to enable you to live for him. And he's building his kingdom and advancing the gospel throughout the world. That was yesterday. That's today. Tomorrow, he's coming back. It might be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. But tomorrow, he's coming again, and he will be with you forever and ever and ever. Jesus loves you forever. It's like that forever postage stamp. Don't you just love that? Now you can buy a postage stamp that says forever, and it's good forever. No matter how high the U.S. Postal Service prices keep going up. Jesus is like that. He'll always be enough. He'll never change. He'll never fall short or let you go. He is the one constant in a world filled with turmoil and sin and change and uncertainty. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. He is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. So, what should you think about during your time of change? The kingdom of God. Passionate about worship, concerned about other people, grounded, rooted, anchored in God's promises, and focused on Jesus Christ and his love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we indeed, we live in a very shaky world where things always change. One day to the next, something's different. Thank you that you're building a kingdom that is unshakable. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Lord, we ask you to build your kingdom here. We pray what uh, Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, Lord. And I pray, as a visitor here, that you'll help Christ the King Church be a people of unshakable faith. Help them to worship you acceptably and with great joy and reverence. Help them to be a people whose love overflows in this church and out from this church, filled as this community is with people imprisoned in sin and mistreated by the world and the flesh and the devil. I pray you'll help my friends here be a people rooted and anchored in the gospel promises and help them keep their eyes on Jesus, Lord, the author and perfecter of their faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Lord, may they too endure the cross and persevere toward glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's...